This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. Tonight's program features author and editor Maria Rana. Ms. Arana is the book editor for the Washington Post and the editor of The Writing Life, Writers on How They Think and Work. American Chica, her memoir of growing up between Latin and Anglo-American cultures, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Ms. Arana discusses the slippery slope between truth and fiction in memoir writing, asking the question, is your life your own? Gregory Rodriguez, the co-founder of Zocalo, invited Ms. Arana to speak to our audience. Zocalo is proud to present an evening with Marie Arana. Thank you to Gregory Rodriguez for inviting me to do this. And thank you for coming on this perfectly beautiful day to listen to an American chica. I think Gregory's title for this program was Your Life is Not Your Own. And I'd like to put a little subtitle to that and say, because it reads like a novel. And that's really what I'd like to get at in um, my talk to you today. I'm here really to talk to you about a tiny little space in our brains, centimeters, it's maybe even millimeters, that separates the cells that allow us to remember from the cells that allow us to dream. I'm no scientist, but I see it as this minimal corridor an infinitesimal jump between the cortex and the hippocampus, between what is real and what is fabricated, between fact and illusion, between memory and the imagination. And it is there in that tiny place where thoughts wander from what is rigorously factual to the flamboyantly imagined, in that narrow space within the vast storehouse of your gray matter, locked within the confines of your skull, that your memoir and the narrative of your life awaits. What I want to suggest to you, in other words, and I want to speak very plainly here because it is a plain and simple fact, is that a memoir is more than anything a story. It's a willed construction, a lie when it most wants to tell the truth, and perhaps most truthful when it wants to shoulder the lie. Let me start at the beginning. I think the Greeks had it right when they concocted the myth about the goddess of memory. They called her Mnemosyne. She was a titan, a daughter of heaven and earth, blessed with beautiful hair and bestowed with the ability to name everything on earth and remember it all perfectly. She was fierce, smart, breathtaking in her power to recall everything that existed or had ever existed, down to the most insignificant detail. It is to her, to Mnemosyne, that historians prayed, hoping that they were setting down for posterity facts, that what was being relayed to them through this fragile human memory was true, that things that people said happened actually had happened. For after all, it is memory with a capital M that tells us about our world. It tells us what went before, what is likely to happen again. It tells us who we are now. 
It places us, identifies us, makes us real. A good memory can give us, as we say in Spanish, el mero mero de la verdad, the very heart of truth. The Greeks had something else right in their mythology as they recounted it. The beautiful, unforgiving goddess, Mnemosyne, slept with the great god Zeus to produce, well, she slept nine nights in a row to produce nine beautiful goddesses in, unto themselves named the Muses, the nine violet-eyed women who rule the imagination and who bring civilization its poetry, its drama, music, and literature. There is a little logic in that. If Mnemosyne gave birth to the Muses, if something so tied to reality can give birth to art, then our memories can give birth to illusion. The past gives us the ammunition to imagine. We leap from one little lobe in the brain that remembers to another little lobe in the brain that fantasizes a lobe that can fashion reality into a story that can pull from all of that chaos that we have lived a clean narrative arc that can clip away all the mess, rid itself of the detritus, and render a work with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Soon, we're working what was real into something far more palatable. We smooth the edges so that a reader can swallow it whole. We devise constructs that pull a mind past all that disorder and calamity into a tidy little train of experience. We give it our organization. We lend it universality, traction. We do all of this so that a story of one small life can have greater meaning, so that a reader can empathize, so that the story means something to everyone, so that it reads like a novel. When I first sat down to write American Chica, my memoir, I thought I would write the history of a buried connection in my family. It was actually a secret. I suspected that we, the Aranas, Aranas, family of staid Peruvian quiet citizens had something to hide. I suspected that we were related to a very grim figure in Peru's past, to Julio Cesar Arana, a fearsome man who lived at the turn of the 20th century, who enslaved thousands, who built an empire of rubber tappers in the dark heart of the Amazon jungle at the very time when the demand for cars and airplanes was going into a boom. The American and European moguls of this newly born automotive and aviation boom needed latex for their tires, and Julio Cesar Arana stepped from the mists of Peru to provide it. He built his empire in Iquitos at a place where the Amazon River divides. He sent out his overseers with guns and chains to bring back whole tribes of rainforest Indians to do the work of bleeding the rubber trees. Before long, Arana controlled the greatest supply of latex in the world. He became one of the richest men in the Western Hemisphere. He became, well, he was boosted to fortune by this burgeoning American hunger for rubber, for the road, 
by enthusiastic London bankers who were willing to fund this extraordinary hunger. In the wake of it all was the trail of thousands of dead. My brother and sister and I had always been told by our Peruvian father that we had nothing to do with this man, nothing to do with that rubber baron, that there was no relation whatsoever. It was what he had been told. What piqued my interest was that no one in our family could produce the genealogical tree that proved that denial unequivocally. The Arana tree went back as far as my great-grandfather only. There were no brothers, no sisters, no uncles, no aunts beyond him. On my grandmother's side, however, on the Cisneros side, the family tree was so tended and so carefully cultivated that it showed ancestors all the way back to the 16th century. I decided to find out the truth of whether there was a relationship at all, myself. After much research, after traveling from the heights of the Andes to the depths of the Amazon jungle, I found the link. I talked to enough historians who actually had relatives who worked for Julio Cesar Arana, and I established the link that was between my great-grandfather and this man. But by the time I established that link, the goddess of memory was pointing her very fickle finger at something else, much more interesting, much better story. I began to be convinced that the effort to hide the truth had produced a far more interesting phenomenon in my family. It had crimped my grandfather so that at the tender age of 40, he refused to come down the stairs of his own house. He ceased to go out into the world. It had made his children and their descendants into generations of the afraid, people who feared asking too much, digging too deep, confronting the truth. Perhaps it was that vague discomfort with the world in general that eventually catapulted my father to America. Perhaps it was that act of extruding himself to another world that predisposed him to marry a complete stranger, a woman from Wyoming, a daughter of a different universe, daughter of a cowboy. So even as I'm telling you this, you can see me frantically organizing a narrative out of that messy, very messy history. I went from thinking I would write about Julio Cesar Arana and his hecatomb in the jungle to writing about my own parents and about how two opposite worlds collided and how I, this fragile human being, built a bridge between those two cultures with all the flaws and self-doubts that bridge, that mongrel that I am, became this curious and hungry result that was their daughter. American Chica, then, is the story of that marriage. It's a love story, plain and simple, between a southern man and a northern woman. But already you must know that outside love, nothing about a cross-cultural union can be plain or simple. The terrain is crazed with faults. The plates beneath North and South America, I think, and some would confirm are vulnerable, 
filled with earthquakes, flaws, differences. Tectonics are shaky. Our ways of life are so different from what we eat to how we pray to how we raise our children to how we love to how we die. The cultures clash. And those of us who dance between those two cultures know that actually we travel great distances to do it. You walk out the home of a Latin American family into an American world and it is a, it is a change. It is a completely new change. We do it. And sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. That was the story that I began to want to tell. That was the narrative arc. I wanted to go back to the meeting of those two people, those two vastly different people, to my parents and the tumultuous life and volatile world that they had made together. And the ways that we children learned to live in that world, I wanted to explore what it was that kept those two people together, and they are still together, still very much in love, still bickering, for 60 years of life. But the truth is, God, I want to get back to this memoir thing, because the truth is that if you ask my sister or brother, the two people who are closest to my experience, whether the memoir I've written is representative of what they've lived through, they will tell you maybe for her, I suppose, but no, not really. She didn't tell it the way I would have told it. In the writing of American Chica, in my attempt to whittle the great rock of fact to render a graceful, communicable image, I left out their sides of the story. I leaned heavily on my version of things and my own emotions. I took other people's recollections and cobbled them into a framework of my own making. I went back and squinted through my own fog of time. And in doing that, I probably misrepresented. You might even say, I lied. That was the word my father used when he scrawled on the manuscript for the very first time when he read it. Lies. <laughs> the word was big. It was in hot pink. Magic marker. Unmistakable. And then more accusations crawled in the margin. BS. Who says? Fantasmagoria, he wrote. Huge. My father's biggest complaints were that, number one, I had told too much. And number two, not in the way that I should have. If those two things make sense together, which of course they don't. From the Peruvian point of view, I had relayed private family matters in the most unseemly manner imaginable. No se hace. You don't do that. A good Hispanic girl doesn't tell the secrets. I shouldn't have revealed the human link my family had been trying to hide for generations. I shouldn't have divulged that my mother had been married three times before she married my father. That my father only learned of those marriages as he was standing before the judge marrying her. <laughs> it was crass of me. In Peru we say, guachafa, una mujer de mal gusto, malcriada. To reveal that there were animosities between my Peruvian grandmother and my American mother was even worse. In truth, the two women baffled each other. They became enraged by each other, by their behavior that they didn't understand. They fought over one man, my papi. 
But if it had been up to my father to tell the story, he would have told a much more polite version. He would have said how extraordinary it was that these two people even managed to coexist, much less sit down to dinner once in a while. He would have told a very different tale. But I expropriated his life in my own book and told it my way. My mother, on the other hand, complained that I took a big American family and conflated it to a motley little band of cowboys in Wyoming, when in fact, her ancestors dated back, and they were many, and they dated back all the way to the Mayflower, for heaven's sakes. Why hadn't I talked about that? My sister complained that I had made her into a surly girl, a misanthrope, always sitting behind a rim of books. But that was how I remembered her from my seven-year-old perspective. And yet, although all of them groused, nobody in the family will now say that what I wrote wasn't factual. It was just from my point of view. What really makes them fret is that it doesn't represent all the facts, not the facts as they saw them. And this is because I had taken this huge liberty in building my story and laying all this bedrock and placing each brick in my little drama and mortaring all these interpretations of the tensions as I saw them, I transformed their lives into my narrative. I stole them and made them mine. And many of the things that they might have recorded in their own books got snipped and pruned and pared and clipped and tidied and they fell down to the cutting room floor. So the question is, how do you build a good memoir? How do you make an essentially biased, essentially flawed story true? A few weeks ago, Susan Sontag stood, I think, under this roof and talked about the truth of fiction, about the ways in which invented tales can sometimes tell you more about humanity than real ones. She said, quote, when I say the fiction writer narrates, I mean that the story has a shape, a beginning, a middle, and an end or a resolution. Well, you can say the same for a memoir. A memoir needs to have a theme. It needs to begin at a certain point in time. It needs to develop a dramatic line. It needs to create narrative tension and come out the other side with a resolution. Sontag went on to say, and I'll quote again, we, meaning the fiction writer, know we must pick one story. Well, one central story, she said. We have to be selective. The artist defined as much as one can in that story, in that sequence, in that time. To tell a story is to reduce the spread and simultaneity of everything to something linear, a path. Unquote, I should say. There you are, mother. That's where all those New England ancestors went. My mother's ancestors didn't fit into the story of this American chica. They didn't exist in my child's mind. I was in the northern parts of Peru until the age of 10. I never met my mother's relatives. They never influenced me, not one bit. It was my mother who was the American in my life. She was the goddess of this country. She was the essence of all that was American to me. And there you are too, papi. Call it impudence, call it malcriada. But I was trying to relate the dramatic tension of our family. I, if I was going to do that, I had to tell about that moment at the altar when you learned 
that an American woman could have the kind of independence absolutely unavailable to a Peruvian woman. It was the essence of our two cultures in conflict. It was what I wanted to say. Sontag also said, quote, a writer of fiction both creates a new, unique individual world through acts of imagination, through language that feels inevitable, through commanding forms and response to a world that is unknown or misknown, unquote. So, there you have it. She might as well be talking about the writer who labors to produce a memoir. Perhaps a memoirist is not, emphatically not imagining her life, but she's certainly using acts of the imagination. She's struggling with the fabric of the past, trimming it this way, pulling it this and that, and framing language that feels inevitable, employing new ways to illuminate an unknown world. And in that, she's trying to give a point to the story. Seeing the events of a raw life collapsed into a neat narrative line may appear to those of your family who were living the events with you a lie. A scene, no matter how carefully described, how carefully rendered, may seem false to a person who actually lived it beside you. And yes, Papi, your first reading of the story of your daughter's life may have made you feel as if you were struggling through the fogs of phantasmagoria. But in scrambling to make a story work, the memoirist may tell a greater truth. What finer tribute to mnemosine can there be than to glean from the random chaos of memory a lesson? Now, I don't want you to think that I've been ostracized from my family forever. In fact, I'm happy to tell you that my mother and my father have come to understand this. A copy of American Chica sits in their living room on their piano. And when I sit down at dinner with them, sometimes my father even quotes from my book. And I. And <laughs> And my sister has actually looked out from the rim, her rim of books, to give me a little pat on the head. The greatest memoirist I can think of, and if I can recommend anything to you tonight, it is to read Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov's extraordinary speak memory. Just as an aside, Nabokov said he always wanted to call his book Speak Mnemosine but he was told that little old ladies would not be able to ask for books with titles they couldn't pronounce. And in fact, I may be mispronouncing it. What is it, mnemosine or mnemosine? I don't know. But Speak Memory was probably a better title, don't you think? But this book is remarkable for its prose, for the cumulative glow of its perfectly rendered images. Listen to the way the book starts. This is chapter one, scene one, quote, the cradle rocks above an abyss, and common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. Although the two are identical twins, man, as a rule, views the prenatal abyss with more calm than the one he is heading for at some 4,500 heartbeats an hour." Unquote. Does that sound? Like he's talking about facts, sounds to me as polished, as elegant, and summoned as a novel. Delivered, of course, from the great distance of accumulated wisdom, and worked and reworked because Nabokov took those memoirs and reworked them again and again because he wanted to get it perfect. He didn't employ a narrative arc as memoirists today 
largely do, neither did Proust. But he rendered in every image that he produced a sense of the dramatic. He knew very well that if he could describe a butterfly so well that a reader could picture it in detail, if he could summon a smell that was ripe in all its particulars, that the reader would read on because life on the page was so brightly drawn, so brilliantly captured. His nursemaid didn't just speak. She did so in, quote, dulcet tones with an ominous quiver of her upper lip. Now, how could he remember that at the age of five? It's beautiful. The bathroom, his bathroom, was no ordinary place. It was a rather sumptuous but gloomy affair with some fine panel work and a tasseled rope of red velvet, which, when pulled, produced a beautifully modulated, discreetly muffled gurgle and gulp. Isn't that wonderful? So that even though Nabokov was not employing a novel's hard rule of beginning, middle, and end, he was, as Sontag put it so well, reducing the spread and simultaneity of everything to something linear, a path. Those memories completely collapsed into something that is a road you can walk down. He wants you to carefully, so carefully, walk that road that you can hardly believe that it's actually a five-year-old taking you down it. He is, in other words, and I'm saying this very clearly now, like any illusionist, like a trickster, like a magician, like a prestidigitator, leading you on, taking you for a ride. Eventually, you cease to care whether it can possibly be real. Does it matter? You only want to get to the next sentence, to the next page, burrow into the world he is recreating. In such ways and through such deceptions are memories parsed, burnished, and made into avenues that will lead you into the mero, mero de la verdad, into the heart of what is essential. It is in the choosing, in the fashioning and embellishing, I'm trying to tell you this very clearly, that reality is made more true. The more you play with it, the truer it gets. Do memoirs lie? Yes. And no. Are memoirists fictionalizing? Only if they are very, very good writers. Can we legitimately call memoirs nonfiction? Place them alongside histories and biographies as works of unarguable record? I wonder. But I would venture to say that there is little that summons the human condition with more accuracy. In telling the stories that get at what is most important to us, in negotiating that perilous and slippery slope of remembrance between that one lobe and the other, in offering up the heart and marrow of our existence, and in arguing it all with the skill of a really good liar, we deliver a larger truth. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a special presentation of Zocalo. That was author and editor Maria Rana. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. 
Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, and the Latino Weekly, Zocalo is made possible by the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us. This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. Tonight's program features author and editor Maria Rana. Ms. Arana is the book editor for the Washington Post and the editor of The Writing Life, Writers on How They Think and Work. American Chica, her memoir of growing up between Latin and Anglo-American cultures, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Ms. Arana discusses the slippery slope between truth and fiction in memoir writing, asking the question, is your life your own? Gregory Rodriguez, the co-founder of Zocalo, invited Ms. Arana to speak to our audience. Zocalo is proud to present an evening with Marie Arana. Thank you to Gregory Rodriguez for inviting me to do this. And thank you for coming on this perfectly beautiful day to listen to an American chica. I think Gregory's title for this program was Your Life is Not Your Own. And I'd like to put a little subtitle to that and say, because it reads like a novel. And that's really what I'd like to get at in um, my talk to you today. I'm here really to talk to you about a tiny little space in our brains, centimeters, it's maybe even millimeters, that separates the cells that allow us to remember from the cells that allow us to dream. I'm no scientist, but I see it as this minimal corridor, an infinitesimal jump between the cortex and the hippocampus, between what is real and what is fabricated between fact and illusion, between memory and the imagination. And it is there in that tiny place where thoughts wander from what is rigorously factual to the flamboyantly imagined, in that narrow space within the vast storehouse of your gray matter, locked within the confines of your skull, that your memoir and the narrative of your life awaits. What I want to suggest to you, in other words, and I want to speak very plainly here because it is a plain and simple fact, is that a memoir is more than anything a story. It's a willed construction, a lie when it most wants to tell the truth, and perhaps most truthful when it wants to shoulder the lie. Let me start at the beginning. I think the Greeks had it right when they concocted the myth about the goddess of memory. They called her Mnemosyne. She was a titan, a daughter of heaven and earth, blessed with beautiful hair and bestowed with the ability to name everything on earth and remember it all perfectly. She was fierce, smart, breathtaking in her power to recall everything that existed or had ever existed down to the most insignificant detail. 
It is to her, to Mnemosyne, that historians prayed, hoping that they were setting down for posterity facts that what was being relayed to them through this fragile human memory was true, that things that people said happened actually had happened. For after all, it is memory with a capital M that tells us about our world. It tells us what went before, what is likely to happen again. It tells us who we are now. It places us, identifies us, makes us real. A good memory can give us, as we say in Spanish, el mero mero de la verdad, the very heart of truth. The Greeks had something else right in their mythology as they recounted it. The beautiful, unforgiving goddess, Mnemosyne, slept with the great god Zeus to produce, well, she slept nine nights in a row to produce nine beautiful goddesses in, unto themselves named the Muses, the nine violet-eyed women who rule the imagination and who bring civilization its poetry, its drama, music, and literature. There is a little logic in that. If Mnemosyne gave birth to the Muses, if something so tied to reality can give birth to art, then our memories can give birth to illusion. The past gives us the ammunition to imagine. We leap from one little lobe in the brain that remembers to another little lobe in the brain that fantasizes, a lobe that can fashion reality into a story that can pull from all of that chaos that we have lived a clean narrative arc that can clip away all the mess, rid itself of the detritus, and render a work with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Soon, we're working what was real into something far more palatable. We smooth the edges so that a reader can swallow it whole. We devise constructs that pull a mind past all that disorder and calamity into a tidy little train of experience. We give it our organization. We lend it universality, traction. We do all of this so that a story of one small life can have greater meaning, so that a reader can empathize, so that the story means something to everyone, so that it reads like a novel. When I first sat down to write American Chica, my memoir, I thought I would write the history of a buried connection in my family. It was actually a secret. I suspected that we, the Aranas, Aranas, family of staid Peruvian quiet citizens, had something to hide. I suspected that we were related to a very grim figure in Peru's past, to Julio Cesar Arana, a fearsome man who lived at the turn of the 20th century, who enslaved thousands, who built an empire of rubber tappers in the dark heart of the Amazon jungle, at the very time when the demand for cars and airplanes was going into a boom. The American and European moguls of this newly born automotive and aviation boom needed latex for their tires, and Julio Cesar Arana 
stepped from the mists of Peru to provide it. He built his empire in Iquitos at a place where the Amazon River divides. He sent out his overseers with guns and chains to bring back whole tribes of rainforest Indians to do the work of bleeding the rubber trees. Before long, Arana controlled the greatest supply of latex in the world. He became one of the richest men in the Western Hemisphere. He became, well, he was boosted to fortune by this burgeoning American hunger for rubber, for the road, and by enthusiastic London bankers who were willing to fund this extraordinary hunger. In the wake of it all was the trail of thousands of dead. My brother and sister and I had always been told by our Peruvian father that we had nothing to do with this man, nothing to do with that rubber baron, that there was no relation whatsoever. It was what he had been told. What piqued my interest was that no one in our family could produce the genealogical tree that proved that denial unequivocally. The Arana tree went back as far as my great-grandfather only. There were no brothers, no sisters, no uncles, no aunts beyond him. On my grandmother's side, however, on the Cisneros side, the family tree was so tended and so carefully cultivated that it showed ancestors all the way back to the 16th century. I decided to find out the truth of whether there was a relationship at all, myself. After much research, after traveling from the heights of the Andes to the depths of the Amazon jungle, I found the link. I talked to enough historians who actually had relatives who worked for Julio Cesar Arana, and I established the link that was between my great-grandfather and this man. But by the time I established that link, the goddess of memory was pointing her very fickle finger at something else, much more interesting, much better story. I began to be convinced that the effort to hide the truth had produced a far more interesting phenomenon in my family. It had crimped my grandfather so that at the tender age of 40, he refused to come down the stairs of his own house. He ceased to go out into the world. It had made his children and their descendants into generations of the afraid, people who feared asking too much, digging too deep, confronting the truth. Perhaps it was that vague discomfort with the world in general that eventually catapulted my father to America. Perhaps it was that act of extruding himself to another world that predisposed him to marry a complete stranger, a woman from Wyoming, a daughter of a different universe, daughter of a cowboy. So even as I'm telling you this, you can see me frantically organizing a narrative out of that messy, very messy history. I went from thinking I would write about Julio Cesar Arana and his hecatomb in the jungle to writing about my own parents and about how two opposite worlds collided and how I, this fragile human being, built a bridge between those two cultures with all the flaws and self-doubts that bridge, that mongrel that I am, became this curious and hungry result that was their daughter.
American Chica, then, is the story of that marriage. It's a love story, plain and simple, between a southern man and a northern woman. But already you must know that outside love, nothing about a cross-cultural union can be plain or simple. The terrain is crazed with faults. The plates beneath North and South America, I think, and some would confirm, are vulnerable, filled with earthquakes, flaws, differences. Tectonics are shaky. Our ways of life are so different from what we eat to how we pray to how we raise our children to how we love to how we die. The cultures clash. And those of us who dance between those two cultures know that actually we travel great distances to do it. You walk out the home of a Latin American family into an American world and it is a, it is a change. It is a completely new change. We do it and sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. That was the story that I began to want to tell. That was the narrative arc. I wanted to go back to the meeting of those two people, those two vastly different people, to my parents and the tumultuous life and volatile world that they had made together. And the ways that we children learned to live in that world, I wanted to explore what it was that kept those two people together, and they are still together, still very much in love, still bickering, for 60 years of life. But the truth is, God, I want to get back to this memoir thing, because the truth is that if you ask my sister or brother, the two people who are closest to my experience, whether the memoir I've written is representative of what they've lived through, they will tell you maybe for her, I suppose, but no, not really. She didn't tell it the way I would have told it. In the writing of American Chica, in my attempt to whittle the great rock of fact to render a graceful, communicable image, I left out their sides of the story. I leaned heavily on my version of things and my own emotions. I took other people's recollections and cobbled them into a framework of my own making. I went back and squinted through my own fog of time. And in doing that, I probably misrepresented. You might even say, I lied. That was the word my father used when he scrawled on the manuscript for the very first time when he read it. Lies. <laughs> the word was big. It was in hot pink. Magic marker. Unmistakable. And then more accusations crawled in the margin. B.S. Who says? Fantasmagoria, he wrote. Huge. My father's biggest complaints were that, number one, I had told too much. And number two, not in the way that I should have. If those two things make sense together, which of course they don't. From the Peruvian point of view, I had relayed private family matters in the most unseemly manner imaginable. No se hace. You don't do that. A good Hispanic girl doesn't tell the secrets. I shouldn't have revealed the human link my family had been trying to hide for generations. I shouldn't have divulged that my mother had been married three times before she married my father. That my father only learned of those marriages as he was standing before the judge marrying her 
It was crass of me. In Peru, we say guachafa, una mujer de mal gusto, malcriada. To reveal that there were animosities between my Peruvian grandmother and my American mother was even worse. In truth, the two women baffled each other. They became enraged by each other, by their behavior that they didn't understand. They fought over one man, my papi. But if it had been up to my father to tell the story, he would have told a much more polite version. He would have said how extraordinary it was that these two people even managed to coexist, much less sit down to dinner once in a while. He would have told a very different tale. But I expropriated his life in my own book and told it my way. My mother, on the other hand, complained that I took a big American family and conflated it to a motley little band of cowboys in Wyoming, when in fact, her ancestors dated back, and they were many, and they dated back all the way to the Mayflower, for heaven's sakes. Why hadn't I talked about that? My sister complained that I had made her into a surly girl, a misanthrope, always sitting behind a rim of books. But that was how I remembered her from my seven-year-old perspective. And yet, although all of them groused, nobody in the family will now say that what I wrote wasn't factual. It was just from my point of view. What really makes them fret is that it doesn't represent all the facts, not the facts as they saw them. And this is because I had taken this huge liberty in building my story and laying all this bedrock and placing each brick in my little drama and mortaring all these interpretations of the tensions as I saw them, I transformed their lives into my narrative. I stole them and made them mine. And many of the things that they might have recorded in their own books got snipped and pruned and pared and clipped and tidied and they fell down to the cutting room floor. So the question is, how do you build a good memoir? How do you make an essentially biased, essentially flawed story true? A few weeks ago, Susan Sontag stood, I think, under this roof and talked about the truth of fiction, about the ways in which invented tales can sometimes tell you more about humanity than real ones. She said, quote, when I say the fiction writer narrates, I mean that the story has a shape, a beginning, a middle, and an end or a resolution. Well, you can say the same for a memoir. A memoir needs to have a theme. It needs to begin at a certain point in time. It needs to develop a dramatic line. It needs to create narrative tension and come out the other side with a resolution. Sontag went on to say, and I'll quote again, we, meaning the fiction writer, know we must pick one story. Well, one central story, she said. We have to be selective. The artist to find as much as one can in that story, in that sequence, in that time. To tell a story is to reduce the spread and simultaneity of everything to something linear, a path. Unquote, I should say. There you are, mother. That's where all those New England ancestors went. My mother's ancestors didn't fit into the story of this American chica. They didn't exist in my child's mind. I was in the northern parts of Peru until the age of 10. I never met my mother's relatives. They never influenced me, not one bit. 
It was my mother who was the American in my life. She was the goddess of this country. She was the essence of all that was American to me. And there you are too, papi. Call it impudence, call it malcriada. But I was trying to relate the dramatic tension of our family. I, if I was going to do that, I had to tell about that moment at the altar when you learned that an American woman could have the kind of independence absolutely unavailable to a Peruvian woman. It was the essence of our two cultures in conflict. It was what I wanted to say. Sontag also said, quote, a writer of fiction both creates a new, unique individual world through acts of imagination, through language that feels inevitable, through commanding forms and response to a world that is unknown or misknown, unquote. So, there you have it. She might as well be talking about the writer who labors to produce a memoir. Perhaps a memoirist is not, emphatically not imagining her life, but she's certainly using acts of the imagination. She's struggling with the fabric of the past, trimming it this way, pulling it this and that, and framing language that feels inevitable, employing new ways to illuminate an unknown world. And in that, she's trying to give a point to the story. Seeing the events of a raw life collapsed into a neat narrative line may appear to those of your family who were living the events with you a lie. A scene, no matter how carefully described, how carefully rendered, may seem false to a person who actually lived it beside you. And yes, Papi, your first reading of the story of your daughter's life may have made you feel as if you were struggling through the fogs of phantasmagoria. But in scrambling to make a story work, the memoirist may tell a greater truth. What finer tribute to mnemosine can there be than to glean from the random chaos of memory a lesson? Now, I don't want you to think that I've been ostracized from my family forever. In fact, I'm happy to tell you that my mother and my father have come to understand this. A copy of American Chica sits in their living room on their piano. And when I sit down at dinner with them, sometimes my father even quotes from my book. And I and, and my sister has actually looked out from the rim, her rim of books, to give me a little pat on the head. The greatest memoirist I can think of, and if I can recommend anything to you tonight, it is to read Nabokov. Vladimir Nabokov's extraordinary speak memory. Just as an aside, Nabokov said he always wanted to call his book Speak Mnemosine, but he was told that little old ladies would not be able to ask for books with titles they couldn't pronounce. And in fact, I may be mispronouncing it. What is it, Mnemosine or Mnemosine? I don't know. But Speak Memory was probably a better title, don't you think? But this book is remarkable for its prose, for the cumulative glow of its perfectly rendered images. Listen to the way the book starts. This is chapter one, scene one. Quote, the cradle rocks above an abyss, and common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. Although the two are identical twins, man, as a rule, views the prenatal abyss with more calm than the one he is heading for at some 4,500 heartbeats an hour." Unquote. Does that sound 
like he's talking about facts. Sounds to me as polished, as elegant, and summoned as a novel. Delivered, of course, from the great distance of accumulated wisdom and worked and reworked because Nabokov took those memoirs and reworked them again and again because he wanted to get it perfect. He didn't employ a narrative arc as memoirists today largely do, neither did Proust, but he rendered in every image that he produced a sense of the dramatic. He knew very well that if he could describe a butterfly so well that a reader could picture it in detail, if he could summon a smell that was ripe in all its particulars, that the reader would read on because life on the page was so brightly drawn, so brilliantly captured. His nursemaid didn't just speak. She did so in, quote, dulcet tones with an ominous quiver of her upper lip. Now, how could he remember that at the age of five? It's beautiful. The bathroom, his bathroom, was no ordinary place. It was a rather sumptuous but gloomy affair with some fine panel work and a tasseled rope of red velvet, which, when pulled, produced a beautifully modulated, discreetly muffled gurgle and gulp. Isn't that wonderful? So that even though Nabokov was not employing a novel's hard rule of beginning, middle, and end, he was, as Sontag put it so well, reducing the spread and simultaneity of everything to something linear, a path. Those memories completely collapsed into something that is a robe you can walk down. He wants you to carefully, so carefully, walk that road that you can hardly believe that it's actually a five-year-old taking you down it. He is, in other words, and I'm saying this very clearly now, like any illusionist, like a trickster, like a magician, like a prestidigitator, leading you on, taking you for a ride. Eventually, you cease to care whether it can possibly be real. Does it matter? You only want to get to the next sentence, to the next page, burrow into the world he is recreating. In such ways and through such deceptions are memories parsed, burnished, and made into avenues that will lead you into the mero, mero de la verdad, into the heart of what is essential. It is in the choosing, in the fashioning and embellishing, I'm trying to tell you this very clearly, that reality is made more true. The more you play with it, the truer it gets. Do memoirs lie? Yes and no. Are memoirists fictionalizing? Only if they are very, very good writers. Can we legitimately call memoirs nonfiction, place them alongside histories and biographies as works of unarguable record? I wonder. But I would venture to say that there is little that summons the human condition with more accuracy. In telling the stories that get at what is most important to us, in negotiating that perilous and slippery slope of remembrance between that one lobe and the other, in offering up the heart and marrow of our existence, and in arguing it all with the skill of a really good liar, 
we deliver a larger truth. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a special presentation of Zocalo. That was author and editor Maria Rana. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, and the Latino Weekly, Zocalo is made possible by the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us. This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an organization dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship in our diverse urban landscape. Tonight's program features author and editor Maria Rana. Ms. Arana is the book editor for the Washington Post and the editor of The Writing Life, Writers on How They Think and Work. American Chica, her memoir of growing up between Latin and Anglo-American cultures, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Miserana discusses the slippery slope between truth and fiction in memoir writing, asking the question, is your life your own? Gregory Rodriguez, the co-founder of Zocalo, invited Miserana to speak to our audience. Zocalo is proud to present an evening with Marie Arana. Thank you to Gregory Rodriguez for inviting me to do this, and thank you for coming on this perfectly beautiful day to listen to an American chica. I think Gregory's title for this program was Your Life is Not Your Own. And I'd like to put a little subtitle to that and say, because it reads like a novel. And that's really what I'd like to get at in um, my talk to you today. I'm here really to talk to you about a tiny little space in our brains, centimeters, it's maybe even millimeters, that separates the cells that allow us to remember from the cells that allow us to dream. I'm no scientist, but I see it as this minimal corridor, an infinitesimal jump between the cortex and the hippocampus, between what is real and what is fabricated, between fact and illusion, between memory and the imagination. And it is there, in that tiny place, where thoughts wander from what is rigorously factual to the flamboyantly imagined, in that narrow space within the vast storehouse of your gray matter, locked within the confines of your skull, that your memoir and the narrative of your life awaits. What I want to suggest to you, in other words, and I want to speak very plainly here because it is a plain and simple fact, is that a memoir is more than anything a story. It's a willed construction, a lie when it most wants to tell the truth, and perhaps most truthful when it wants to shoulder the lie. Let me start at the beginning. I think the Greeks had it right when they concocted the myth about the goddess of memory. They called her mnemosine. She was a titan, a daughter of heaven and earth, blessed with beautiful 
hair and bestowed with the ability to name everything on earth and remember it all perfectly. She was fierce, smart, breathtaking in her power to recall everything that existed or had ever existed, down to the most insignificant detail. It is to her, to Mnemosyne, that historians prayed, hoping that they were setting down for posterity facts that what was being relayed to them through this fragile human memory was true, that things that people said happened actually had happened. For after all, it is memory with a capital M that tells us about our world. It tells us what went before, what is likely to happen again. It tells us who we are now. It places us, identifies us, makes us real. A good memory can give us, as we say in Spanish, el mero mero de la verdad, the very heart of truth. The Greeks had something else right in their mythology as they recounted it. The beautiful, unforgiving goddess, Mnemosyne, slept with the great god Zeus to produce, well, she slept nine nights in a row to produce nine beautiful goddesses in, unto themselves named the Muses, the nine violet-eyed women who rule the imagination and who bring civilization its poetry, its drama, music, and literature. There is a little logic in that. If Mnemosyne gave birth to the Muses, if something so tied to reality can give birth to art, then our memories can give birth to illusion. The past gives us the ammunition to imagine. We leap from one little lobe in the brain that remembers to another